0: And so I went to my GP and I said, uh, you know, I think I need to I need to transition. And my, my GP at the time said, OK, well, I'll, I'll refer you to a psychologist. Um, and I went to the the psychologist and the psychologist insisted that um, I was not transgender. He insisted I was uh, schizophrenic hmm. uh, and he put me on antipsychotic drugs uh, and I I became totally unable to, to function because of the, because of the medication, wow. and I became so terrified of um, the reaction, and that you know not even a professional would believe what I was saying, that I just didn't say anything again for 10 years, and I lost 10 years of my life. You're
1: listening to The Medical Republic. I'm Felicity Nelson. And I'm Francine Crimmins. You just heard from Sydney comedian Cassie Workman describing her harrowing experience with the healthcare
2: system. Penny, welcome to the show. Why were you interviewing Cassie? Hi guys. Uh, Yeah, so I spoke to Cassie because some new guidelines around transgender healthcare um, have come out in the last Medical Journal of Australia... And um, I knew that uh, Cassie has been, you know, quite outspoken about what a rough time she had and how hard it is to find supportive doctors when you're transitioning. Um, and I, and the, the author of the guidelines, the lead author, Dr Ada Chung, uh, told me a similar story. She got into trans medicine when she heard that doctors were turning trans and gender diverse patients away from their practices. And it you know, broke her heart and it outraged her as well. Um, And I heard the
1: same thing last year when I did a story about um, transgender children. Um, So some of these families are having to travel quite a long way to find a doctor who's willing to help or even just to listen to their story. Yeah,
2: and it's probably largely a lack of confidence because it's something that a lot of doctors won't have encountered yet, either in their training or in their practice. But it's something that you're more likely to see a bit, bit more of now that there is an increased acceptance of you know, being transgender as, as part of the spectrum of normal human diversity. And uh, it's now accepted that it's a biological condition, for want of a better word, that can lead to a lot of distress and depression, but it's not itself a mental illness or a psychiatric disorder.
1: Yeah, and the WHO recently actually changed the classification
2: to reflect this. That's right. And Dr, uh, Dr. Chung says gender incongruence can affect up to, well, between 0.1% and 2% of the population, uh, she compares it to having red hair. And it's, um, it's still perhaps slightly mysterious how it occurs, but one idea is, the, is called the developmental mismatch hypothesis, which is that um, the brain and the sex organs develop at different times in utero, so there is potential for them to be misaligned.
1: And the medical perspective is also
2: shifting quite rapidly on this, but that
1: also doesn't really account for the fact that there's still a lot of discrimination out there.
2: Yeah, and like some of the media isn't helping. Um, the Australian is still uh, publishing stories like Jennifer Oriel's column, uh, I think from last week, talking about castrating children, and she's saying that the medical profession has a duty of care to dispel the delusion if a child thinks that they're in the wrong body. And... Um, Oh, this is going completely counter to the best practice and the best evidence to date and I would refer Jennifer to the suicide and self-harm statistics which um, according to Dr Chung uh, more than 40 percent of trans patients will have attempted suicide and more than 60 percent of self-harmed and so Dr Chung's paper is all about the management of adults and um the management of children and adolescents is, yeah, obviously a more controversial, you know, question. But, and you need to be very sure. But Cassie told me it would have saved her an enormous amount of hardship if she'd been able to transition in adolescence or even before puberty. And uh, no, it's um, Jennifer. It's not something that you can be talked out of. And here's Cassie again. Did anyone ever try to offer you counselling to try to change your mind about it or dissuade you?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's a funny thing because, uh, like, a lot of the hate that I get on the Internet from being a, a, a public transgender figure is people saying you need to get help, you need to see a a, a psychologist. And, and it's like, well, you know, that's what I did. <laughs> that's that's how I ended up here. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like, b- before I, I came out, I was solely interested in, in finding somebody to fix me. Or what I thought would be fix me and just make me, you know, quote unquote normal. Mm. Um, yeah, I wanted to find a way to to, to counsel me out of it, mm. and it, it, it very quickly became apparent that that's just it's just not possible. Mm. The the only treatment that we have for for people with trans identities is is transition. It's the only thing that that works.
2: Um, I also spoke to a lovely lady called Claire Headland, and she didn't start transitioning until her mid-sixties after a lifetime of depressive and suicidal thinking because she didn't even know that it was a thing that you could be or a thing that you could do. And um, Both Claire and Cassie have encountered a lack of understanding among their medical professionals and um, Cassie's even described being physically thrown out of a medical practice and that wasn't in the sticks, that was in Melbourne physically thrown out yes yeah. physically ejected was the words that she used for asking for hormones
1: really yeah oh my god
2: recently yeah well yeah she only uh, transitioned in 2017 so it's in the past couple of years and because she's a comedian she travels around to work and has finds herself in other you know health practices and she gets a you know very different treatment at different places uh, so what did they say in these new guidelines Okay, so um, the paper, which, by the way, is not just by Dr. Chung, but it's taken two years to produce, and it's a big collaborative kind of effort, it it takes you through all the factors to consider, starting with the basics of using the preferred name and pronouns, um, mental health review to rule out any other conditions, then um, the interventions, and while some trans people will be happy to transition just socially, others will want medical or surgical interventions, and... So while masculinizing and feminizing hormones work pretty well, there isn't a whole lot of long-term evidence about their effects, and um, there are both benefits and potential health risks. Dr. Chung said that because of the severe mental distress that goes with being trans, the risks are something that they're prepared to tolerate. And um, then there are the possible surgical procedures and, and through to ongoing monitoring and support. And there are you know things that you might not... Think of like cancer screening. Obviously, you're still susceptible to the cancers according to your organs, not according to your identity. So you need to be screened you know, for breast cancer or for you know, prostate cancer if you still have prostate. Um, but when I spoke to her, what, what she emphasized was not so much these medical details, but that GPs should be prepared to listen and to even learn from your patients, which isn't something that will necessarily come very easily, but um, everybody's really still learning at this stage. Uh, She says you don't have to be an expert and it's okay to make a mistake as long as you show a little understanding that can go a long way and ultimately they're just ordinary people who need your help. Absolutely and that's
1: what I heard when I did my story on um, transgender health in children last year. A lot of the GPs who were now experts in the field didn't start off that way. They sort of fumbled around, they made a lot of mistakes, it was embarrassing. Their patients came in and knew a lot more about it than they did. Um, but eventually you know, you you find your way Um, and the patients were just so grateful to have someone who would listen and try to learn that they didn't really mind if there were a couple of mistakes along the way. Yeah I think you just need to
2: show a bit of understanding and compassion and muddle through.
1: Yeah and Penny did you actually come across any resources that GPs um, could use to maybe become a little bit more informed or understanding for some of these patients?
2: Yeah, well, uh, actually, uh, Dr Ada Chung started um, a medical research group called the Transmedical Research Group, which is a good place to start. Thanks, Penny, for coming
1: on this episode and for giving us these insights into transgender health. It's such an important topic. Yeah, thanks, guys. Next up, I'm sharing an interview I did with a doctor who manages to spot things like turtles and dugongs and even crocodiles on her way to work in the morning. Her name's Dr Alison Hempenstall, and she's a GP working up in the Torres Strait, an incredibly remote location. It's Thursday Island off the coast of Queensland. And she's also recently diagnosed a case of leprosy in Australia, which was featured in the MJA in recent weeks. But first, here's our hot topic from Dr. Michael Fasher. Dr. Fascher is an adjunct associate professor at the University of Sydney and a GP based in Blacktown. In this clip, he shares his views on why GPs feel like they're under so much pressure to prescribe medications.
3: We know that there is, let's take antibiotics, great variation in uh, general practice in terms of prescribing antibiotics for children. So for instance, I do believe there was a recent publication which showed that uh, my colleagues in St. Mary's in Western Sydney prescribed significantly more often antibiotics for children than colleagues elsewhere. As I reflect on that, I think, three things one in medical school we absorb the hidden curriculum that is doctors we're here to discover problems and then fix them and i think rather more of our work is trying to understand what's going on rather than sort out what we can fix secondly i think that there is the fact that we are remunerated for the volume of the work we do, not the value. And there's no doubt that writing a prescription can end the consultation fairly quickly. And the third thing that I think of is just clinical lack of clarity in thinking. So, for instance, I questioned one of my registrars about the uh, environment which St Mary's where she'd just been working. And she said, well, the conversation at lunchroom, where goes? The day you send a child home without a prescription who dies, you will never again uh, send a child home without a prescription. That's just clearly muddled thinking. Reforming the system and the way we're paid would help. So it is a problem that the system... I mean, hospitals and general practitioners and specialists in private care are paid for the volume of the work they do, not for the value. So, hence my interest in health system reform. The other thing I encourage my registrars to do is not to be thinking too quickly, how can I fix this problem? But to be keeping on being empathic, listening, and trying to understand exactly what the problem is.
1: The following interview is one I did with Dr. Alison Hempenstall, GP registrar with Akram up in Thursday Island in the Torres Strait. I caught up with her to hear about what it's like doing GP training and rural generalist training in one of the most remote parts of Australia.
4: I did my uh, Doctor of Medicine with Melbourne Uni and finished about five years ago and that's a postgraduate qualification and so I'd already done a undergraduate in Biomedical Science before that.
5: And um, how long have you been in Thursday Island for? Over 18
4: months now, I actually did a three month placement when I was a junior doctor up on Thursday Island um, as a rotation uh, from Cairns Base Hospital. And then I liked it so much, I wanted to come back and do my training there. I think I was really lucky. And I, con- I contacted the of medical services at the time and asked if there would be any opportunity for a placement um, up there. And I was lucky that it worked out. And they, they were able to create a position for me.
5: So you studied at a city-based university. How... It's it's quite interesting because I'm imagining you're not rural yourself. Is that correct?
4: I, I grew up in suburban Brisbane. Um, definitely a, am not a regional or remote um, person. And I, you're totally correct. I went to university um, in a metropolitan um, place. And now I've ended up in one of the most remote, remote places in Australia, And so it's quite interesting this concept of people who live remotely or rurally going back to those places when after they finish their training. But I think equally so, if you provide opportunities to those who may be the city counterparts, they might very well want to go and end up in remote places like I am on Thursday Islet. That three-month placement a couple of years ago on Thursday Islet opened my eyes to what kind of place it was, what kind of medicine they practiced and the community that I'd be living in. And so that
5: was probably the key determining factor for me coming back is the fact that I had prior experience there. Do you see that as a very important thing that more students should be experiencing to kind of convert them to rural medicine, so to speak? I think
4: you're always going to get people who are attracted to different kinds of medicine, whether that's in a city, in a regional area, in a remote area. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think it's a matter of converting people. I think it's providing opportunities for medical students and junior staff to have a wide range of experiences so that from that
5: they're informed in making a decision on what career path I'd like to take. My next question, I know that there's no typical day, in medicine but if you have to describe how a day goes down as a doctor in Thursday Island well, would you be able to do that oh maybe I could do a week that might cause my job
4: from day to day can be quite different so at the moment Uh, A typical week for me um, would include one day at the one or two days at the primary healthcare centre on Thursday Island delivering primary care to Thursday Island residents. Another day might be um, in the hospital holding the phone where we provide care to all the patients on outer islands. So if there are nursing staff that are reviewing or health worker staff reviewing patients on outer islands and they need um, help from a doctor, they'll call up um, the on-call phone and I'll provide them with healthcare care advice. And then another couple of days a week, I'll be on a helicopter going out to these islands and providing healthcare care out there where I'll be the only doctor in these small clinics with usually one nurse, one or two health workers, and maybe a reception staff, again, providing primary care. I'm actually doing um, an uh, academic post this year through acram And so one day a week is actually non-clinical, and I do research and teaching on that day. So it's quite varied <laughs> throughout the whole week.
5: And one thing with that is I did notice on Twitter you've put up some really beautiful photos, I believe, when you take that helicopter ride. It's a very surreal experience
4: where most people will be in traffic jams or catching public transport or riding their bike or walking to work. To get a helicopter to work um, is one of the unique experiences of working in the Torres Strait. Um, The rides are anywhere between half an hour to an hour. And um, you just sort of are able to have this amazing experience where you see the beautiful landscape and reefs underneath as you're going from Thursday Island to an outer island. It's pretty inc- incredible. And it's quite often that we will see turtles and dugongs. Sometimes we see crocodiles. Um, and then, of course, the extensive reefs across the Torres Straits.
5: You're obviously as well so close to PNG um, where you are. Mm. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you how the proximity of where you are to PNG maybe changes the health needs of the community that you're um, working in. Yeah, that's a really good question.
4: Um, I would say that the health needs across the Torres Strait are different whether you live closer to the Cape or closer to Papua New Guinea. Um, those who live closer to Papua New Guinea or who frequently visit those outer islands, such as Saibai Island and Boygu Island, I definitely think of other um, communicable or infectious diseases that are more easily um, transmitted between the border of the Torres Straits and Papua New Guinea, such as. TB is the the primary diagnosis that you would consider.
5: Um, And I noticed recently you have also diagnosed a case of leprosy. Could you maybe talk a little bit about this?
4: Yeah, so leprosy is a bacteria which is sort of a cousin of TB. It comes from the same class called Mycobacterium. And it's a slow-growing bacteria that's usually caught... From someone who does have leprosy sneezing onto another person Um, and it can result in skin lesions but also those lesions not being able to feel anything so having altered sensation and as a result if you can't really feel your hands or your feet you might bump them and bruise them um, and get ulcers and infections and that can lead to the deformity that we classically know in patients who have leprosy. Obviously it's an increased risk of us um, having leprosy in the Torres Strait because of that shared open border between um, Papua New Guinea and the Torres Straits. So there is um, an agreement made between Papua New Guinea nationals and Torres Strait Islanders uh, whereby both PNG Nationals and Torres Strait yeah. Islanders can freely transport between the two places for um, cultural exchange and maybe exchange mm. of local goods. So you don't, don't have the customs borders that you would say um, when you're leaving Brisbane or Melbourne or somewhere else or going into another country, that's a free, open border um, based on this treaty. Uh, and so it means that infectious diseases can more freely um, uh, come across those borders without a tight protection. I was on SyBi just last week and there were a number of patients there who um, I saw who were from Papua New Guinea, so not from um, Thursday Island, who um, also had leprosy. Yeah, so it's um, it's something that, that I was very surprised to see, but uh, it's something that we as clinicians need to keep in the back of our minds when um, seeing patients primarily from Papua New Guinea but also from Torres Strait Islanders who might have particular close family ties with communities in Papua New Guinea.
5: Has that experience of starting to see disease that we would, I guess, yeah. in <laughs> urban centres, we wouldn't even think um, exactly. is something that you might even need to learn about in medical school anymore necessarily? Yeah. Um, Ah, it's um it's such a
4: bizarre experience because here I am on Australian soil, seeing these diseases that are historically found in very poor countries but then then in saying that Papua New Guinea is one of the poorest countries in the world, and it's this amazing yeah. dynamic where you have a um a developed country such as Australia bordering on a developing country such as Papua New Guinea.
5: Um, you're really in between a country that has arguably some of the best health outcomes in the world Absolutely. and then you've got, you're right next to yeah. one that has some of the worst health outcomes. Definitely. It
4: makes it really challenging um, to uh, see patients from Papua New Guinea uh, and provide health care to them, which um, you know you know will not be as the same kind of standards as treating an Australian just because... Of the limitations in providing care to them you know we unlike Australian patients where you can get them to come back and see how they're feeling in a week's time we can't do that with um, PNG nationals probably the um, most pivotal thing that I have come to appreciate in my time up on Thursday Island is the importance of Torres Strait Islander culture on their health Um it, They are a very family-orientated community and for them, decision-making and health care and the priorities in their health are are this bigger decision-making in their family and their community, whereas in other areas or in non-Indigenous communities, I find that people are a little bit more independent and act as silos for their own health care and yet in Indigenous communities, and in particular in Thursday Island, everyone relies on the support and care of their family and their community, and that has such
5: a ripple down effect onto the healthcare. And I was going to ask when you're not uh, having to work, uh, what's there to do um, for a GP on Thursday Island?
4: Well, my reality for the last six months has been sitting exams I've just been getting <laughs> through my fellowship exams, so that's what I've been spending a lot of time doing um and i've I've now passed those um but when i'm not when I'm not um doing research or teaching or most recently sitting my exams. Um, I love spending time with, uh, you know, my other friends up on Thursday Island. We often go out fishing on boats and visit other little islands to go for a a swim on some beaches that we're pretty sure don't have crocs around (laughs) Um, uh,
5: and, uh, you know, that's probably the, the main things that I do. And this is a big question. Do you see yourself staying on Thursday Island or what does the future have in store for you? I'd very much like to stay um,
4: on Thursday Island. Uh, It's a very special place and I think its community deserves a continuity of healthcare that it hasn't been provided with historically in the past. I think the doctors that are there at the moment have been there anywhere from uh, a year to up to 10 years. And so we've been able to provide a good continuity um, of care for patients in recent more recent times as for me I don't know I don't know how long I would be up there for I think it, it depends from year to year um, but at the moment
1: I'm very happy up on Thursday Island so that's all we have for this episode but before we go Felicity has a quirky historical fact for us So let's wind back the clock to the 6th of December, 1805. A giant warship called HMS Isis is stationed off the coast of England. The ship's surgeon, Benjamin Lara, examined a seaman called John Cummins. John Cummins presented with excessive pain in the stomach and intestines, incapacity of retaining anything in the stomach, and pain on walking or standing erect. He said he swallowed on the preceding day 19 or 20 clasp knives and one clasp knife case, the latter of which was soon rejected but the former retained. Was there no lunch on the ship that day or something? Well, I think he did it as a party trick and it became something of a habit and eventually, they think, caused his death in March 1809. Um, And when the doctors did an autopsy, they found 30 or 40 fragments of wood, metal and horn in his stomach. Well, it is a pretty impressive party trick if you can swallow 20 to 30 and live to tell the tale. I think that was over several years, but yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's it from us this week. Uh, For the next two weeks, we've got some bonus episodes and then we're back with our final episode for this season uh, in the first week of September. See you then.